Well, take our Bibles and we'll turn over to Titus. And in that little book of Titus, we're looking at some ministerial qualifications. I know we've been kind of, kind of dragging this out. I was hoping to finish this this morning. I'm not sure we're going to because there's a couple of things that are like side roads that I want to go down. But I think it's important. We're privileged, by the way, to open God's Word and look at it. It's a real honor and privilege. It's a responsibility on all of us, on me especially, because I'm trying to teach it. But it's a responsibility on all of us to uh, even hold me accountable and to be discerning as to what God is saying to us and how he is reapply those things to our lives. And we live in a country of freedom, so we don't have to worry about yeah, it at this time. We do. Somebody busting the door down there. Yeah, and that, that brings, thank you, Rick, that reminds me, uh, we are coming up to the watch night service, and we'll have a prayer time at the end of the service. I've been debating whether it would be better just to have a kind of a prayer time rather than communion to do the communion that Sunday, which is the first Sunday. But we have a, we have a, as we are facing the, the uh, new year, there are a lot of kind of discouraging things on the scene that uh, create, I think, a lot of calls for concern and stuff. And yet it's comforting to know that the throne is still occupied. Right? God is still on the throne and he never makes a mistake. Even though he he does things a lot of times where we look at it and we we can't understand what he's doing, why he's doing it this way, why he allows these things. Um, but he is in charge, and everything that happens, we can know that he's he is overseeing it. If he allows it, then it's going to fit into his plan. That's a good thing. So we have that hope, uh, even though we may be discouraged about the way things are going. And in 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 I'm not just talking about the political scene either, but the virus. The things like that, the things with our health and stuff like that. A lot of things that are that are on the plate that create a cause of concern. But he is still on the phone. I've been reading, we were reading this morning, Revelation. I've been reading that because uh, I've been reading through the Bible. I finished uh, reading through Malachi, uh, Malachi sorry. And uh, now we're finishing up Revelation. I got about one more chapter. I've been going real slow at the end because I've been so far ahead. And just kind of uh, going through it, and it's been really good. But um, I just enjoyed doing that. It's it's a real honor and a privilege to do that. Right, let's take our Bibles and turn to we're in Titus chapter one, and I'm going to just read through verse seven without any comment till we get down to uh, verse nine where we are today. But in verse seven, he says, "Well, the overseer must be above reproach." As God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled. And then the text we're going to be looking at today where he says, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. So uh, we are down at that section now, and I want to just kind of find out where we are in my notes here, that, uh, so we don't I don't get lost. It's easy. There's a lot here, and so there's it's a lot to look at. And I I have spent some time looking at this. Even at work yesterday, I was spending a lot of time kind of deciphering some of these things in my mind and and uh, how they apply and stuff. The last one we looked at was self-control. We looked at that the other day. And uh, now we come to this 
the idea of holding fast the faithful word. The idea there of holding fast made up of two words. The first word is the word anti. You've heard of anti being against something or contrast something. And that's the, the Greek word that is there. means to be in, held in contrast, perhaps. The second part of that word, echo, means to hold firmly or to cleave to or to support. And so it has the idea of holding firmly into something in contrast to other things. Um, and I think that's interesting that the idea there is to take the word and to set it, uh, elevate it on a pedestal of something that we're going to hold on to deliberately letting other things and lesser things slide out of the way so that we're not trying to hold on to this and this and this, but the idea is to focus on the word and to hold that, to hold firmly to that and to stick to that as the priority. Does anybody have a hard time with that? Because it is God's word and it is really, really important holding firmly then, even against opposition uh, against false teachers, against satanic attacks, against personal sinfulness or laziness. That should come first. That's a top priority. And so that's, that seems to be there kind of what he's saying is to say to us. To be faithful to the word against all possible oppositions or detours. Uh, it's, it's important to see that. That word that's translated uh, holding fast is translated several other places in the New Testament. I'm just going to give you a quick couple of verses there. In Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, Paul translates that word that, that is translated here, holding fast. He translated translates it help in 1 Thessalonians 5, 14, which reads, We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. And when he's talking about helping the weak, perhaps he's talking about holding the weak up or, or helping them and, and to give them a little bit of special uh, strength, a little special help as opposed to others because they are weak. Give them that little bit of nourishment. You see what I'm saying, what he's saying? Now, that seems to be the idea of that, even though it's translated help. Two other verses, both of them are translating pretty much the same same way. They are Matthew 6:24 and Luke 16:13. And I'll just read I'll read the one from Matthew, but they're both very similar. He says, No one can serve two masters. Luke says no servant can serve two masters, which means the picture here is of a slave trying to serve one master or another. And Jesus is saying that a slave can't do that. You've got one master, not two. You can't serve one and serve the other at the same time. You're going to have to decide which one you're going to serve. No man can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, that is, he's going to choose one and uh, devote to be devoted to the one and not choose the other, which is interpreted as hating, hatred. He's going to love the one and hate the, hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted, and that word devoted is our word that's translated holy fast. He will be devoted to one, and despise the other, hold the other in contempt, or think lightly of the other. He's going to be devoted or, or holding firmly to the one and not to the other. And that's translated in both verse six, Matthew 6, and Luke 16, 13, uh, translated devoted there. 
And so the idea here of the scripture is holding uh, fast, if you will, holding firmly to the word. And he calls it the faithful word. The word faithful there is the word pistos. Uh, and it has to do with a person that is faithful, uh, a person who conducts, trans faithful to conduct the transactions or execute commands or discharge official duties as they should be done. He's faithful to do that. And here he calls it the faithful word. Why do you think he calls it the faithful word? What is it that you think the, that the writer is saying there when he says to be holding fast the faithful word? What is it that about the word that we're thinking about that is faithful? Well, there are a number of verses that we can think about. And I'm going to get into looking at the word word in just a minute. But before we do that, I was thinking about the faithfulness of it. Um, I'm thinking of many passages that make it clear that the word is God's communication to us. Case in point, Hebrews 1. God who at sundry time in diverse manner, that's the way the King James translates, at various times and various seasons, spoken to us, spoken to the fathers through the prophets, as in these last Days, this time of the Messiah, spoken to us through his son. So he's communicated to us, both to the fathers, through the prophets, and to us through his son. So God is, is faithful to do that. And the scriptures says that um, God's word will accomplish wherewithal he sends it. Wherever he sends it, it is faithful to accomplish what he wants it to accomplish in our lives. And we know from scripture that, and we took it Psalm 119. I was looking at Psalm 119, and I don't know if I can find it that quickly, but Psalm 119 is that Psalm in which you have a lot of information in that Psalm about God's word and how God's word applies to our hearts and lives and what it does. And I was thinking of, for example, Psalm 119, the very first verse, uh, the Lord says, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his loving kindness is everlasting. Those who walk in the law of the Lord, how blessed are those who observe his testimonies, who seek him with all their heart. So that he's saying those that keep God's law are blessed. Those that keep God's law enjoy the favor of God. Now, that's kind of like Psalm 1. Uh, if you remember Psalm 1, that, that wonderful, wonderful verse where, let me read it, turn it, turn over to it. He talks about delighting yourself in the law of the Lord and not to be fathering after the counsel of the godless or the wicked or sitting in the seat. He says, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. So the man is blessed who, instead of doing that, takes a delight in the law of God. And in his law, he meditates day and night. This is a delight. And this separates his life, makes him fruitful, makes him um a blessing. God's word does that. That's that's what that's one of the aspects I think of his faithfulness is that he does that. He takes his word and he makes it a blessing to us. Uh in back in Psalm one nineteen he he talks about the fact that God's word um if we treasure in our heart will keep the young man pure. That uh, it will keep our hearts clean and pure. And uh, he said, another passage, I've done word of a hit in my heart that I might not sin against thee. And uh, it's, it's, it's God's word, and it's promising to do that. And that's a, that's, a, that's a good thing. He keeps us from sin. 
how he reveals himself to us. And the scripture also tells us that he shows us our heart, the depravity of our heart through the word. Paul talks about it at the beginning. The non righteous know not one, there are none that uh, seek God all from the side to give the communion. So that, that uh, the, the word tells us the truth about God and it tells us the truth about ourselves. It's very valuable and it's very valuable, powerful. In fact, if those of you who got my Christmas letter, remember that in the bottom of that, I mentioned something about reading your Bible every day because it's the most powerful thing we have. And God uses it. It's really, really very powerful. If you read it every day, it'll change your life. It'll change your heart. It can change your destiny. And so here he calls it the faithful word. It's faithful to do those things. And uh, I, I just think it's, it's uh, important to see that. The word that's translated word, no surprise, is the word lagos. We are familiar with that word, very familiar from the way it's used by the Apostle John. But the Greek word speaks of, the word lagos speaks of intelligence. Now, lagos, it's, a, it's an expression of that intelligence. Uh, it's almost like a discourse or a saying. Uh, John MacArthur says lagos refers to the expression of a concept or thought or truth. And uh, it's, it's used sometimes just to communicate, but most of the time it is used to speak as a synonym for God's truth, God's word. And uh, there are a number of verses, John 5, 38, do not, do you not have, you do not have his word abiding in you. He's talking about the word of God. You don't have his word abiding in you. Um, John 10, 35 Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and says, if he calls him God, to whom the word of God came, there it is again, the word of God speaking of the scriptures, the word of God, the communication from God. And it's used that way um, many places, many, many places in scripture. But John says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me, that's the word of God, if you hear it. And so the word lagos is used that way. It's also used in John 1, 1 to speak of the communication of God in his son. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, the word was God, the same was in the beginning with God. And then verse 14 says, and the word became flesh. And you mentioned this morning that he tented or tabernacled among us. He dwelt among us. God's communication, he is the communication from God. He is uh, the revelation of God to us. Philip asked the question to Jesus in the upper room discourse, Lord, when Jesus said, you know the way, and they would ask the question, how do we know the way? We don't know how to go. And Jesus said to them, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. And, and uh, you know what he's like. And uh, I am the way. And I am the truth. And I am the life. That is astounding statement of this one who is the truth of God. And so here is this picture of the word which the faithful word is the faithful communication of God to us. We don't have a problem with that. I know we understand that, and it's important. It has to do with his being, he being the communication of us. Um, I want to take a few moments, kind of a, one of the rabbit trails I want to go down is this contrast. I've been reading Revelation, and I've been seeing in Revelation the use of two phrases talking about the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. And uh, I've been wondering about the difference between that. What is it? What does it mean to have the testimony? What does it mean to have 
the word, the communication of God's word, and how is God's word a communication, and also how is there, do you understand what I'm saying? There is a, in other words, you've got two distinct terms that are being used of some kind of a communication, uh, and in Revelation it's used, John uses a lot with Jesus, talking about Jesus, and so that's got me thinking about that. The, the, the term that is used for testimony uh, is the term frequently translated witness. And uh, that term witness is a term marturion or marturios, which is related to the term for martyr. In other words, the term for witness doesn't mean martyr, but it came to mean martyr because people who were witnessing and giving testimony of their relationship with Jesus Christ were opposed so much by the system that they ended up many times paying for that testimony with their life. That's pretty, pretty heavy. And so it, it was uh, not, it was, in fact, it was probably more common for a Christian not to be martyred than it was when to be martyred. It became pretty common place. And so I want to just take about a few moments to look at this term, the testimony. It's used to speak of the testimony of John the Baptist concerning Jesus Christ. Uh, it's used that uh, the te- there was a testimony of John himself, uh, John the Baptist, when the Jews sent him to inquire about the, the Lord. It's also used to speak of declarations of Jesus. He said things like, my testimony is not true or valid if I testify about myself and so on and so forth. And so it's just, it's it's having um, a witness that we give verbally about Jesus or about something. In 1 John um I believe it's First John. No, Third John. I'm sorry, Third John. I believe it's Third John. I, I wrote down. I have several verses there, but the, the the text you'll be familiar with. Demetrius, he says, has received a good testimony from everyone. So here's this man, Demetrius, in the church, and he's received a good testimony from everyone, from the truth itself. And we add our witness or testimony concerning him, and you know about our testimony that it is true. The point of the verse I'm just trying to make is that here are people giving witness or testimony about Demetrius and about some things. It's a word that they have to say on behalf of it. Take your Bibles and turn to 1 John 5 for a moment. I'm going to take a few moments in here because I think it's good to see this. This, If you notice, I don't know if you pay much attention, when I sign, I like to use the sign of verse of Scripture. And the verse of Scripture that I frequently will use is 1 John 5, 11 and 12. And so if you'll take your Bibles and turn to 1 John 5, 11 and 12. Verse 11 says this, and the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Now that's the verse, and there's enough verse in there to realize that it's essential that we know who Jesus is. And we have that testimony. But the question arises there in that text is what is this testimony that he's referring to there? Because he's, he's in a context where he's talking about the testimonies agree. And so let's back up and we can just back up maybe to verse 5 um, where John is talking about the overcomers. And we know that overcomers are those who are in the Christian life who are struggling against the flesh, the world, and the devil, and seeking to overcome that and to live a godly and Christ-like life for Christ. Hey, how's it going? Yeah, I'm good. And so overcomers are those 
in the scriptures that are able to overcome, is able to overcome the, the distractions, if you will, of the world and the flesh and the devil and to overcome that and to live the focus. The, the verse that comes to mind to me a lot is the text where it says, um, delight, not delight, it says, um, set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. That's a, a pretty serious command. And so, G, Paul is, John is talking about overcomers here in 1 John chapter uh, 5 and verse 2. Verse 5, he says, Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So he's talking about the ones who overcome are those who believe who Jesus is. This is the one who came by water and the blood, Jesus Christ. Now we'll stop there for a moment. Water and the blood. I agree with MacArthur on this. That the water has to do with the baptism because it was at his baptism that his life, he was confirmed with the, the words from the Father in heaven. And it was at his baptism that, that that was confirmation of his person. And not only that, but the blood has to do with the cross and where he died. So we have the witness for the son given at his baptism, the testimony of him. And we have the testimony of him on the cross where you hear, uh, you see the activity that took place with the getting dark and you hear the the sun crying out, it is finished, and so on and so forth. So you have this this uh, double, if you will, indication of who Jesus is, this testimony, uh, by water and blood. Jesus Christ, it was not by water only, he says, but with water and with the blood. And then he says something, he says, it is the Spirit who testifies. So now you have the Spirit introduced into this, that the Holy Spirit is communicating and we know the Holy Spirit communicated there at the baptism, and we know the Holy Spirit was communicating there on the cross, as Jesus was on the cross as he was dying, and it got dark. And so the Spirit is the one who testifies of the truth. So there are actually three, he's saying, that bear witness or give testimony. There is the Spirit, because the Spirit did in fact speak. There is the water, the place of baptism where this took place, and there is the blood where you have Christ dying on the cross. These three areas of testimony John get, uh, John gives here are given in, in uh, testimony of Jesus. And it says in the next, the rest of the verse, that these three are in agreement. There's no contradiction. And if we receive the testimony of men, he says, why the testimony of God is greater, for the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his son, the one who believes in the son, has this testimony now in himself. So this witness. So you have this, this witness of the light, the speaking of the light, the, the uh, evidence in the light, the, 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 what comes out of the communication. What, what's one of the big places where we give testimony of who Jesus is? J- Jesus said it's in the heart. A man speaks, the mouth speaks out of what's in the heart. And uh, that, that uh, whatever is in your heart comes out through your mouth. And that's one of the areas where we give testimony is through our mouth because it's in, it's in our heart. Whatever a person talks about all the time, that is what's in their heart. The, the, the mouth reveals what's in the heart. And so here is this picture. He says, he who believes in the Son of God has a testimony in himself, and the one who does not believe has made him out a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given, water, flesh, and blood, water, uh, spirit, uh, water, and blood. He's not believed the testimony that God has given con- concerning his Son. And then here's the verse that I quoted earlier. The testimony is this. That God has given us eternal life. This life is in his son. He he who has the son has the life. Who does not have the son of God does not have the life. So, 
here we have, we looked at the word, logos. We saw that the word is the, the communication, the publication, the articulation of God's truth. Now we see the word testimony, which is usually a testimony and evidence that comes out of the life or comes out of the mouth coming from the person himself. It's the witness, if you will, of the Christian life. Um, in Revelation, I told you about uh, the idea of being overcomers. In Revelation 12, 11, it says, talks about the uh, saints there in one of the churches. He said uh, they overcame him that is accuser of the brethren because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony. So there was the strength of the gospel and the sacrifice, the power of the lamb and the word of their testimony, the witness, the message. And they did not love their life unto death, even when they faced death. So that the witness of their testimony ended up leaving them, leading them to death. So what I'm saying, and I know it's kind of confusing. We got two areas of communication. We got the word, and we got the testimony that comes out of the life. And the testimony was so strong in some of these that they were put to death because of their testimony. I ask a question of myself. I ask the question of you: What kind of testimony does your life give to the Lord? Is the message of your life consistent with the word that comes from God. You see what I'm saying? Do they do they say the same thing or are they saying something different? Does God's word say one thing and your life says, well, I'm doing something different? That's a pretty serious question. That will be a question that will determine our eternal destiny because the parable of the sower, where Jesus talked about the sower, went out to sow and he sowed the seed and he sowed some on hard ground, he sowed some on stony ground, sowed some on ground that had weeds and that was the good soil. It's the good soil that's real. It's the other soils that, that produce a little fruit for just a few minutes, and then they end up drying up, either being choked out or with, with uh, persecution or being choked out with wealth and prestige and things of this nature. So the, the, that is important. That's why I want to look at that. Is I think it's important to see that that witness. And uh, the, that uh, if, you, if you take the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, and uh, look at look Hebrews. You can see that place where the word witness is used, and this will be the last place we'll look for that particular word. And that's Hebrews. I'm sure I get the right place. Hebrews is talking about um, the Messiah and who he is and how he is better than everything, all the angels and everything else. And let me get that. Hebrews chapter 12 says this, you can follow along in verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses or testimony bearers. Here is that word again, this idea of witnesses, those people that are bearing testimony. Who is it that he's talking about when he talks about this great cloud of witnesses, a great cloud of testimony bearers? Some people say that, um, and I've heard that, that it's, that it's the cloud of angels in heaven or the saints in heaven that are like the like the lion cheering us on to go, go, go. But it's not. It's not that at all. It's those in Hebrews 11. Who is it in Hebrews 11? You have men, uh, men of faith, men who it says by faith gained approval. Men who gave a better, in fact, Cain is listed there at the beginning of Hebrews 11. Cain attained, obtained a better testimony, a better witness by his life. Uh, and even though uh, there was some uh, struggles there with the offering and stuff like that. That pointed out his, his testimony. 
Enoch was the one who bore witness there in Hebrews 11. He walked with God and obtained a testimony that he was not going to die. There was Noah who prepared an ark. Abraham who lived as an alien looking for a promised land. Sarah who conceived a child in his old age by faith. All of these are those that did things by faith. Abraham offered up his son Isaac. Joseph gave orders concerning his bones and what to do with them after he was dead. Now Moses chose to suffer affliction with the people of God. And he led the children of Israel through the Red Sea. All of this by faith. Rahab, who was called Rahab the harlot, was identified with God's people and was not condemned with the people of Jacob. And all of these and there are other illustrations there are people by faith. And then our text says, therefore, well, first of all, he says, um, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and sin which so easily entangles us. That cloud of witnesses are those people in Hebrews 11. You say, well, they are super saints. They are way up here, and I'm not up there by any means. I'm way down here. But this text doesn't say that. This text says, let us also. Just as they did, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and sin which so easily entangles us. Do you get the sense that there is a struggle here with this life, with this walk? And not only is there a struggle, but that struggle is intended for us to overcome so that we become overcomers in this struggle, in this battle to follow the Savior. We, we participate in that. We lay aside uh, the encumbrances and the sin which so easily entangles us, and we are told to run or hasten with endurance, not give up, but endure the race that is set before us. Your struggle and your race and my struggle and my race are different. It's not the same. The, the race that these people in Hebrews 11 ran by faith, theirs is also different. None of us have exactly the same race or the same struggles. We have this race that God has given us, the pathway that God has given us. We need to be faithful to that and follow it and to run that race. Do you understand what I'm saying? The way he wants us to run, to run the race he's given to us. And that's why he's saying, let us run with endurance the, the race, the struggle, the life that is before us. How? By fixing our eyes on Jesus. Notice it doesn't say the Lord Jesus or Jesus Christ. It says Jesus, which tells us that he's referring to the earthly incarnate son of God. So he said, fix your eyes on Jesus. Where do you do that? Turn to the Gospels and see how Jesus the man lived and what he did. Fix your eyes on him who is the author, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is set down now at the throne of the universe. And so Jesus is our example. We focus on him and look at his example, and we see him as one who endured. And so we want to do that too. We struggle, we lay aside the sin, and seek to follow and emulate this path that those in Hebrews 11 did. We want to be faithful, just like they were, to follow him. And that that gives us then the testimony that he's talking about. That's what faith does. It gives us a life and a witness and a testimony that the faith is real and that our life is bearing fruit for his Lord. So that's an important. So we see those two words. We see the word of God and we see the testimony. I told you that Hebrews had these words in it. I mean, I mean not Hebrews, Revelation. I've been reading Revelation. Let me read a couple of them to you. Revelation 1-2 talks about he who testifies to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. The word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Revelation 1.9. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, 
was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. The, the testimony of Jesus Christ is the witness and the, the life surrounding Jesus Christ because John was an apostle. You think about it, most of the people, a lot of the people by John's age had died. There weren't a lot of people around who did, did walk with Jesus and knew him, but John had. And he could sit down with him and he could sit down and reminisce about a lot of the things that Jesus did. Jesus said, we like to do that. <clears throat> we talk about me being so old and sitting down with Grandpa and talking with Grandpa and remembering these things. And I remember the olden days, during the days of the Depression. <clears throat> Siggy used to talk about things like that at times of the Word of Life. But John could do that with his walk with Jesus because he, he walked with him and he knew, knew about him. And so he ended up being persecuted because of the communication of God's word as well as the communication of Jesus as he talked about him and witnessed to him and encouraged people to follow him. Another verse is Revelation 9. I'm sorry, Revelation 6, 9. It talks about the lamb breaking the sixth, the fifth seal. I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain uh, because of the word of God. They were those that had, had, proclaiming and teaching the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. That's uh, one more, Revelation 6, 9, and the last one is Revelation 24. We were in Revelation back in that area this morning. He says, um, when I saw the thrones and they who sat upon them, judgment was given to them, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. The testimony and the word. So you want those two. You understand what I'm saying? You want those two to be in agreement. You want your testimony and your witness of your life, what comes out of your mouth, to be in agreement with the the logos, the communication of God's word to us. Now let's go on. We're going. We'll cover just a little bit more. It's getting kind of late. He goes on to say that that um, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, accordance can, would be be in harmony with or be controlled by, or governed by the teaching. The word accordance uh, is the word kata, and when you study Greek, kata is one of the common words you study, and you, you parse the verbs and stuff like that. But it's a preposition, and it directs the motion uh, or the action of a phrase, and here it's directing the action of the phrase, the, uh, phrase faithful word, and uh, it's saying it directs it down onto the teaching, if you will, to, to make sure that the faithful word is accurately being taught, what it's doing. It's saying be faithful and careful about the teaching. It's, it's, uh, he, he calls it here, uh, accordance with the teaching. The scripture uses the phrase for so often, sound doctrine or sound teaching. And that's what he's talking about. It's to be inconsistent, that your teaching be inconsistent with what the Bible says. A lot of people have their desire about what they want the Bible to say. A lot of people will talk about the man upstairs. And a lot of people will talk about what they have to do. We say to them, give their opinions. The opinions won't get you into heaven. The, the gospel of Christ will. And we want to formulate our opinions based on what the scripture says. That's really important. And so uh, the, here he has um, in this phrase here, talks about this, this the sound doctrine, which is in the court of the faithful word. Um, Titus 2, just to talk, just to bear witness about this sound doctrine, Titus 2 says, Paul Ranger Titus says, but as you speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Speak the things that are, are fitting for that. Titus 2, verse 7 and 8, in all things show yourself to be an example in good deeds. So that example is what would be your testimony. That's what he's saying. In all things 
show yourself to be an example, have a good testimony of good deeds with purity of doctrine, which means your testimony is going to be in, in compliance with what God's word says, the truth of God's word, uh, and dignified, sound in speech, so that your mouth is saying the same the things that are sound in speech. In First Timothy chapter one, verse nine through ten, Paul talks about um, the law. He says, realize this that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious. And that's true. And, that, and we are among those who can be lawless and rebellious at some time. So God has given us his word to help us help curb that passion. For the ungodly and the sinners, for the unholy and the profane, and for those who kill their fathers and mothers or murderers. And, and by the way, we don't kill our fathers and mothers, but the Bible does say if you, you hate somebody without a cause, you're guilty of, of the same thing of murder. It's like looking at a woman to lust after her is to be committing adultery with her in your heart. And so the, the law has a higher standard. So um, he says, uh, immoral men, homosexuals, kidnappers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So down, sound doctrine is the standard that goes against and reveals all these lawless, rebellion, ungodly, unholy, profane, homosexual things. They are all against the sound doctrine which the scripture proclaims and teaches to us. First Timothy 6, 4. A couple more verses will be done. Um, it says, if anyone advocates a different doctrine, Paul is writing to Timothy, it says, if anyone is proclaiming a different doctrine and doesn't agree with the sound words of those of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the doctrine which conforms to holy living or holiness or godliness, this person is conceited and he really understands nothing, but he has... He has moral interest in controversial questions and disputes about words out of which arrive envy, strife, arise envy, strife, abusive speech, and suspicions. So he's saying, let, let sound doctrine control your thoughts, in your mind, in your heart. Um, and when people disagree with that, don't take them seriously. Don't give them a platform to teach their stuff, uh, but hold on to the sound doctrine. Let that control what you know. To be the truth, and many times he uses the phrase "sound teaching" as a term to describe the sound doctrine, because the teaching of the of apostles was the established doctrine of the New Testament until the New Testament written, and so it's a it's a it's an important kind of a, a guideline. Finally, uh, Paul says to Second Timothy in chapter four, "For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires." And they will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Imagine that, having the truth, turning their ears away. And sometimes we do that. We, we like one preacher and what he says, not necessarily because it's more biblical, but he's just maybe a good speaker or he says things we like. And we turn from one thing because it, it kind of pampers us, comforts our itching ears, and we turn that from the truth to that. Don't do that. Make sure that everything we listen to and we study and we proclaim is in conformity with what God has said. Uh, and if it's in conformity with what he said, we want to follow it and we want to live it so that the testimony of our life will agree with the word that has become in, has been implanted in our hearts. Does that make sense? You understand what I'm saying? So that's important. Let me go back to the text now and uh, read that and then we'll be done. Paul is talking about uh, um holding fast to the faithful word, which is in accordance with the sound doctrine. Um, I will cover that best of part next time because I don't want to get, uh, get, get, get 
next time we saw. He says, so that we will be able to exhort with sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. So there are two things there that, that we want to look at. Exhortation and refutation to exhort uh, people in giving direction and instruction with sound doctrine and then to correct those in an error uh, to help them get a grasp on the truth if you can. So that's important. We'll look at that next time. I didn't mean to get this long, but it's important. So, all right, let me close the word of prayer. Father, it's 12 o'clock. And uh, thank you for these people. They're very patient as we're looking at your word. You are so good to us to give us your truth. And uh, thank you, Lord, for your mercy. You don't have to you don't have to take the time to do this. You don't have to write these things out to explain these things to us. You don't have to reveal yourself to us as we study the scriptures and look back and forth and see areas of, of commonality and areas of application. Uh, you didn't have to go to the cross to die and to take our sins. You don't have to do these things. You could have left us alone and we would have been lost. We would have never known anything about you. We wouldn't have wanted to know anything about you. We would have run the other way. But you are a God of mercy and grace. And I just thank you so much for your goodness to us. Thank you so much for loving us and caring for us. Thank you that that you are presented in Scripture as a God who is a, a Savior, uh, one who comes as a deliverer. That's what was the Christmas message, that you're also uh, revealed as a good shepherd, a shepherd who is in contrast to those who came before who were full of wolves and, and sheep's clothing and things of this nature. You are a good shepherd. Indication of that is that you lay down your life for us, your sheep. And you've told us uh, in that passage, that's another thing that the word is faithful to do, is to tell us, help us to know how we are your sheep, how we can uh, determine that in our lives. It's really important. Thank you for that. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love for us. And pray your blessing now as we we coming back tonight at 5 o'clock to 5.30 to Larry's place, 5 o'clock. I pray for that study. I pray you'll bless that. Pray with be with Larry. Thank you for their willingness to open up their home to us. And we ask your blessing upon that time. And we pray in Jesus' name with thanksgiving. Amen.